Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 29 in the book of John, entitled, He Who Has Seen Me Has Seen the Father, where we discuss John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these amazing verses today? Oh, this is one of the greatest sections of the Bible. Uh, John 14, 6, the exclusivity of Christ. I'm mm-hmm. the way and the truth and the life. But, you know, we zeroed in on the statement that he makes to Philip. Um, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus, as the perfect revelation of the glory of God, the image of the invisible God, there's so much theology in here. I can't wait to discuss it. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let me go ahead and read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, so we can get a sense of the passage as a whole. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Andy, what's the connection between the end of chapter 13, where we just came from in the last episode, and John 14, 1, and why would the disciples' hearts be troubled? Well, think of the things that he just discussed. He made it plain that one of them would betray him, and they don't fully understand that, but they, they understand the words, and, and we know that he's talking about Judas. Then Judas goes out to do it, and then he says that Peter directly is going to deny him three times that very night before the rooster crows. And he's been talking openly about his own death. Uh, It's clear from his demeanor and what's going on. They are genuinely filled with sorrow. The synoptics make this this, uh, clear. When they get to Gethsemane, they're overwhelmed with sorrow. And, and they're weary. And so here he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, it's a very interesting statement. Some, some people are just so feelings-oriented. They say, well, I can't help it. Mm-hmm. I, I can't control myself. This is just how I feel. And maybe you've known somebody like that. Maybe you are like that. It's like, I can't help how I feel. Well, you can. You can help how you feel. And so fundamentally, dark emotions come from dark thoughts. And for us as Christians, there are such bright thoughts that can drive away all the dark thoughts and then the emotions fall into line. Mm. And so we're about to have some of the greatest verses on heaven in the Bible. And, we're, and so heaven is, should be a continual meditation that fills us with un, unsinkable joy. When Paul says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, 
he definitely has heaven in mind, that, that we are going to spend eternity with God in heaven forever. So let nothing dim your joy. Every circumstance you have in life, it's not even worth comparing with the joy and the glory and the beauty that's coming in the future. So uh, when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he goes immediately to talking about heaven. And so that's how it works. And I think even the second half of that verse, right? Mm -hmm. Believe in God, believe also in me, it says in the ESV, mm -hmm. that this trust in God and mm -hmm. in Christ really does dispel yeah. uh, troubled hearts. Yeah, trust me, he's saying, he's saying, I know what I'm doing. Hmm. Don't let your heart be troubled. Um, be able to be metaphorically like I was in the ship asleep on a cushion during the storm. You need to, your soul needs to be like that. Mm. Just be able to rest in my hand and know that I know what I'm doing. Everything's on schedule. Doesn't mean there's not things that we have to do and doesn't mean that we don't feel sorrow or mourn with those who mourn, etc. There are hard things we have to go through. But ultimately, ultimately, trust in God and trust also in me. Mm. In verse two, what is Jesus referring to when he speaks of his father's house? Mm -hmm. And how does he describe it? Yeah, KJV gives us many mansions. Uh, that I've, I've heard that there's a history of the word mansion in mm. the ancient English. Uh, it's related to the, a French word that, that ultimately ends up being translated here, rooms in a larger house, rather than each of us getting like individual mansions. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Newport or some of these other ridiculous places like Biltmore. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets their own Biltmore or something like that. <laughs> Maybe, but I don't know that that's what's being said here. Um, there's more of a, a kind of a big house and we all have um, places. Uh, another image, a similar image would be at my father's table, there are many place settings, mm. uh, that kind of thing. The idea is there's a place for you and uh, there's many of them. And so I want to elevate your minds now off of the immediate troubles and sorrows. And I want to lift you up into heavenly contemplations. We are going to a beautiful place and there's plenty of room and there's a place for you. And uh, I'm, you know, we'll get to it, but he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so it's just heavenly meditation will help you not let your heart be troubled. Hmm. You alluded to it a moment ago. Um, according to verse two, how does Jesus prepare a place mm -hmm. uh, for his disciples? Well, first and foremost, we have to think it's by going to the cross. By dying on the cross, he is preparing a place for us. Hmm. Because we find out in the book of Revelation, only the pure and perfect can enter the new Jerusalem. Nothing shameful or defiled outside are the sinners, basically. The unredeemed sinners are outside. So we're not getting in that place if Jesus doesn't go and die on the cross. As he said earlier in, in John 13, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So he goes and prepares a place for them by dying for them. Frankly, in the end, I think there's not a lot of difference between him going and preparing a place for them and him preparing them for the place. Hmm. Or even, we could say, in a mysterious way, preparing them to be the place. They are the church. They are the new Jerusalem. They are the bride descending from heaven, beautifully dressed for the husband. They are Zion. Uh, we are living stones in this spiritual house. So he prepares a place for us, but he also prepares us for the place. And frankly, in the end, that's what he's doing. By redeeming the elect from every tribe, language, people, and nation in every generation of church history, he's preparing a place for us. So we're going to meet brothers and sisters, and they have been prepared by justification, sanctification, and glorification, and we're going to be there. So it's really the whole saving work 
of the elect chosen in Christ before the creation of the world by dying and by sending the Spirit, the counselor who's going to come and get them ready, that's how he prepares heaven. And it's going to be radiant. And basically, in the end, it's we are heaven and God is heaven. It's, mm. it's, it's the new Jerusalem, that's us, descending out of heaven from God so that we can be with God forever. That's really what heaven is. It's us and God together forever. Wow. What's Jesus' ultimate purpose? And I think you've just kind of elaborated on that in this last answer as well. But what's Jesus' ultimate purpose in verse 3? Mm-hmm. Well, he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And so what he's, what he's saying there is he's giving us hope and confidence um, he, he knows that they're going to go through very difficult times. At the end of this stretch of teaching, at the end of chapter 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He wants them to take heart. Mm. So he's giving them confidence. Um, also, this is one of the many, many references to the second coming of Christ. If I go, I will come back and take you to be with me. That's the second coming of Christ. And Mm. so he wants us to set our minds on his return, on the second coming. So he says, I'm going to prepare a place and then I will come back and take you to be with me and you will be with me forever. Hmm. In verse four he says, you know the way to where I am going. Mm -hmm. So is heaven a place and is there a journey to be traveled Mm -hmm. to heaven? Well, heaven definitely is a place because of the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It has to go somewhere. All right, we're not going to become a diffuse gas. Uh, we're not Buddhists becoming nothing, nothingness in nirvana mm-hmm. or, or achieving nirvana in, in, in emptiness. I, I don't, that's not it. We, God made physical stuff and he said, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Mm-hmm. All right, that's his resurrection body. So there's got to be a place for that. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be in, we're going to be somewhere. So heaven is a place, but he's really talking much more about heaven being a state of intimacy and closeness and fellowship with God. And he, he, he makes a statement, everything Jesus says is factually true. So he's not saying, I hope you know the way. Uh, I'm, I'm trusting that you know the way. He said, no, no, you know the way to the place. You do know it. And we're about to find out what that is. But he's, he's saying that there is a location you're going to, but ultimately we're talking about salvation. So I think mm. for me, as I look at, at this idea of the way, and we'll talk about that in a minute, a journey to be traveled, I can't help but think about uh, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, hell, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, life, heaven, and only a few find it. So um, Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. You know the way to heaven. And immediately after that, Thomas, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So he asks this question. Just like, Actually, Thomas's question makes perfect sense to me. Sure. It's like, well, if we don't know where, I mean, that makes no sense. Right. How can, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Right, and I love, <laughs> I love these questions because they're honest, right? You yeah. know, we've talked about Peter before and uh, how he asks some things and says some things, but they're yeah. honest questions. And Thomas here is just like, okay, wait. If we don't know what the place is, and we don't know uh, where it is, how can we possibly know the way yeah. 
to where you're going. So you know what I think is going on here? I actually think that Thomas and Martha are kindred spirits. They're both <laughs> very pragmatic. You know, they, you know, Martha's you know cooking a bunch of meals and, and bustling around and getting everything ready. And, and, and Lord, by now there's gonna be a stench because he's been in there for four days. I mean, she's just a very sensible person. And so I, I see Thomas, unless I put my finger in the mm -hmm. wounds and mm -hmm. it's like, he's just sensible, like, practical man. You know? <laughs> show me. Show me. Show me, show yeah. me the way. I gotta you know, say, I don't know, know what you're talking about right. here. So anyway. And Jesus' answer is a, a very famous yeah. verse. Talk about verse six, right? That Jesus is the way, mm -hmm. the truth, and the life. Maybe the second f most famous verse in John's gospel. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. But I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And mm -hmm. this is the consummation, perhaps. Um, you know, maybe not, not, not the last one, but maybe one of the greatest I am statements here. So Jesus makes many I am statements. So I am the bread of life. I am the, uh, the door for the sheep. Um, in the next chapter, he's going to say, I am the vine and you are the branches. So he's not done making I am statements. But uh, here he says, I am the way. So he, let's go back to his statement of verse 4. You know the way to the place. And then he says, I am the way. So here's the thing. First of all, the word way tells me that salvation is a process. Mm. So Wes, neither you nor I are done being saved. Um, Paul says to Timothy that he should develop his gift of preaching, public reading of scripture, preaching and teaching, and he should develop that gift and do it in front of everybody, for in so doing he will save both himself and his hearers. He's not done being saved. Salvation is a process. Justification, then sanctification, which is an infinite journey, as I've said in my book, on sanctification and then glorification. There's a process. Hmm. The process, Jesus says, I am the process. I am everything. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am salvation. So I am justification, I am sanctification, and I am glorification. I am the way to heaven. Hmm. So I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, each of these is really quite amazing. By the way, we know that, that the church, the early church, was called the way. So there is a way of life that is Christ. There's a, there's a whole way of living. There's a way of speaking, a way of thinking. There's a, there's a way of doing things. So it's very practical, but it's, there's also a way of thinking. So, and Jesus is everything. But he's also, he says, I am the truth. And this is really an amazing statement. The more, just the I am statements are amazing. Mm -hmm. But this is one of the most amazing I am statements there could ever be. Not I teach the truth, though I do. Not I live out the truth, though I do. Not that I love the truth. I do love the truth. Um, there's a lot of things we could put in there. But ultimately, let's go to the, the, the final analysis. In the final analysis, I am the truth. Only God can make that statement. Hmm. That is, that is a, a deity statement. Jesus does teach the truth, writes the truth, or, or has people write the truth on it. He lives out the truth, believes the truth, all, of, all those verbs. But ultimately, all truth is consummated in Christ. Mm. It's just an incredible statement. I, I don't know if I can put better words to it. It's just you're, you'll find out in heaven what I am the truth means. Pilate said, what is truth to Jesus? And didn't wait for an answer. <laughs> and it's like, if you could just speak to Pilate like his wife tried to do, it's like have nothing to do with that righteous man, et cetera. But if you could just speak in his ear and Pilate could listen, it's like when you said, when you say, what is truth? If you could just look at him and understand who he is, you would know what truth is. So I am the truth and I am life. And we already covered that in John 1. Mm. In him is life. 
And you know, life is in Jesus. There is no life apart from Christ. So um, some have combined them saying, I am the true and living way. But I think, you know, let's just say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Hmm. And then it makes the next statement. Right, and in verse 7, he actually goes further in this, this connection between him and the mm-hmm. Father. How is it true that truly knowing Jesus is yeah. the same as truly knowing the Father? And mm-hmm. how had the disciples known and seen the Father? Yeah, fundamentally, this statement that Jesus makes when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and, and that is it. When you, when you know Jesus, you understand. Um, it is vital for us. And I think this may be, as we continue to, to go on in American history, this may be one of the most controversial aspects of Christianity to our surrounding unsaved culture, the exclusivity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. This is the clearest statement along with, I would say, Acts 4.12. These are the clearest exclusivity of Christ statements. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's as clear. Those two go together. You don't go to heaven apart from Jesus. And so uh, you have to deal with that. You have to deal with what about those who've never heard the gospel? You have to go through all this. But fundamentally, we understand there is one and only one way Mm. to God. One of the things, I have this image ever since the the painful, the horror, really, of 9-11, of the Twin Towers burning and people throwing themselves from the upper upper floors, knowing they had no hope. There's no way they could get down the stairs. you know, so would, would you rather be burned to death or fall to your death? I mean, it's just horrible. But imagine some skyscraper and there is an escape. Let's say there is a helicopter that comes with, with uh, a, a ladder that's, that's lowering down. And there's a, a first responder, a firefighter that's there reaching out and, and saying, jump and I will catch you. And you look here on the, on the 16th floor, there are things engulfed in flames. There is no other way. Mm. Okay. Would you begrudge the fact that there is one and only one way to escape? It'd be like, you'd be with tears coming down your face, thankful that that guy's risking his life to save your life. Hmm. And you jump, and he catches you. And for the rest of your life, you're like thanking him for saving you. It's ridiculous and evil for the world to want a menu of salvation, uh, different ways whereby we can be saved. Mm-hmm. Lots of different paths up the same mountain and the view is the same and is beautiful from the top. All of that, those are all satanic lies. And frankly, Satan crafted all the other lies. So the exclusivity of Christ, we need to cling to it as, uh, as it's absolutely essential to our presentation. Now when he says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Hmm. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. Sure. But just the perfection of the incarnation. Yeah, and Philip asked the question this time, right? He still doesn't seem understands what Jesus is talking about. So much so that in verse 8, he actually asks Jesus to show them the Father. Jesus just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father. How does Jesus respond? Really in verses 9 through 11, this whole section is is focused in on Jesus' response to this question and who Jesus is. Yeah, I think verse 9 may be one of the deepest verses in the Bible. Uh, one of the deepest verses on the Trinity and on the Incarnation. Um, and just the, even the first part. Show us the Father. Answer, don't you know me, Philip? Uh, like, I'll be honest with you, the circuit breaker of my theological brain just tripped. Jesus is not the Father. So what is he saying there? Show us the Father. He said, don't you know me? Even after all the time that I've been with you. 
Then to help out, he makes this additional statement. Anyone has, who has seen me has seen the Father. So some years ago, I got an analogy, um, and this is what I use. Okay, It has to do with the S-U-N, the sun, like sunlight up in the sky. Let's imagine that a sunbeam that has traveled across 93 million miles of outer space should come to the the to your cornea to the edge of your of the lens of your of your eye and you stop it just a minute sunbeam <laughs> and you talk to the sunbeam and you say to the sunbeam okay show us the sun and the sunbeam is almost a little exasperated saying that's what i've come 93 million here? miles to to do mm. if you let me in you will be seeing the sun now, the sunbeam is not the sun. The sunbeam is the communication of the sun to our eyeball. That's the best way I can harmonize this. It's like Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And so when you look at the radiance, you are seeing the Father, but he is not the Father. That's the best I can make of this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but I am not the Father. Mm. <laughs> now let me let me go beyond that. I had a weird conversation with my daughter, and this was this is, uh, and she's like, and I'm writing this book on heaven, and she was saying to me, "So we're going to see Jesus in heaven, right? Yeah. Will we see the Father too in heaven? Yes. Um, and she, well, well, what does he look like? Is he like an old man? Is he? I mean, what are we seeing? It's like, well, G, you'll see. G, I know we're going to see Jesus. Will we also? see the Father. And at that point, I had to say, I just don't know. I know we will see his face. I come to this statement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But I don't know how we see the Father and the Son. You know, so honestly, I just have to give a big fat I don't know to that one. I, I don't think there's this old man sitting on a chair up in heaven, um, but he is depicted as the Ancient of Days in, in Daniel 7. I don't know what to say. Do you? I, <laughs> no. I, I was really hoping for an answer I there to resolve that question in conversations with your daughter. All I know is we'll be satisfied and we will see God. We will see his face. Mm. Um, but how that, how Jesus as the radiance of the invisible God works out or now he's visible, I don't know how that works. Yeah. Is he a bright cloud? I don't know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And talk talk about verses ten and eleven because mm -hmm. there there seems to be some more explanation here. There's this in language. Okay. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Right. Uh, there's there's a lot here, and it actually it also talks about uh, the two evidences for Jesus' mm -hmm. deity. Right. His his word and his works yeah. here. Talk a little bit about these. Well, two you verses. said a lot there, Wes. Um, so <laughs> the in uh, this is this is the, the the mystery. The mystery of the Trinity is the unity. Um, not the threeness, but the oneness. And the in language is how we can begin to understand the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. Mm. We will be in God. Uh, we are in Jesus and Jesus is in, in us. Um, I don't know. It's just this intimacy, closeness, unity of thought and purpose, I, I, I guess. And especially because the Father never has had nor ever will have a body. He is not made up of atoms. He's not made up of stuff. He made stuff. So he is not stuff. So therefore, he, he, he isn't located. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't have a location. 
So it just, I think it has to do with intimacy and fellowship and unity and all those types of things. And then, as you said, the evidences. The two evidences are Jesus' mighty words and Jesus' mighty works. And those two go together to prove his deity. So as you listen to his words and see his works, you know that the Father's in him and he's in the Father. Hmm. Now this final section, beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 14, this final mm-hmm. paragraph here, starts with <clears throat> this phrase, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, mm-hmm. and greater works sure. than these will he do. Mm-hmm. Should verse 12 surprise us? It seems like a shocking (laughs) statement. How how should we think Mm -hmm. about verse 12 and this idea of greater works? Yeah, one thing I should have said a moment ago, and you did ask the question, but I didn't fully answer it the way I needed to, is the miracles are suitable ground for us to believe in Jesus. If you look at the miracles, that's a good basis for believing he is God. Hmm. So Jesus said that, believe on the evidence of the miracles. The miracles are, because Jesus actually, to some, in some points, um, it's like, what, you need to see another miracle? You know, it, it's always the miracles. You need to see more miracles. The miracles are the evidence that John gives us that hmm. Jesus is the son of God. So believe that. But then he says, greater works Will, will he do? Anyone who believes in me will do greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. And so the only thing I could say is it's not miracles, okay? The miracles that, that Peter did in the book of Acts don't really compare with the miracles Jesus did for the greatness of them. Like, mm-hmm. like raising Dorcas from the dead is similar to, but seems less than raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. There were tons of people there. It was it was just a big display. Now, raising the dead is raising the dead, but still. Um, and then just the sheer quantity of them, the quality of the miracles and the quantity. No one can touch Jesus. There's nobody even close. There's no been no one in church history, no one in the book of Acts, no one in church history has even come close to this. But Jesus never says anything that's not true. So I think it has to do with greater in quantity and it has to do with regeneration, conversion of a multitude greater than anyone could count. That is greater than raising Lazarus from the dead physically. And so the church was instrumental, will have been instrumental in a multitude of literally hundreds of millions of believers standing around the throne. That's greater than the works Jesus did, the healing works he did in Palestine in the three years of his ministry. Hmm. Well, verses 13 and 14 are some incredible statements mm-hmm. about prayer. Mm-hmm. How does Jesus' answer to our prayers bring the Father glory? Well, and he, we, we can spend more time on prayer in John 15, So, um, but yeah, we'll, we can ask anything. And, and there's so many exhortations to pray. Mm. I, I like to go back to the Samaritan woman. Jesus said, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked him for something. So the better you know Jesus, the more you'll ask him for. So I'll, and then go to William Carey, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. I think you can do both of those in prayer. And then you go out and act as William Carey did. So to learn to expect great things from Jesus and ask him for anything in his name. So go to the scripture. It has to do with conversion, has to do with missions, has to do with evangelism, has to do with churches growing and developing and ask him for great things. Mm. And this passage closes with that uh, instruction to ask 
anything in his name, knowing that he will do it. What does it mean to ask for things in Jesus' name? I think it means for the sake of his reputation, so his name is his reputation. You could also say understanding that if it weren't for me, you wouldn't get in the door. Similar to Esther, if the golden scepter doesn't get extended to you, you're going to get evicted from the throne room. Mm. Jesus is the new and living way, so we come in his name, oh, okay, you're welcome, in the name of Jesus. So both those aspects, our right to be there and draw near to the throne of grace, and our content of our prayers are whatever will further his reputation in the ways that he has described by his commands for his glory, things like that. Mm. Any final thoughts on this passage, Andy? Oh my, Uh, just expectancy of heaven, knowing that Jesus is the only way, knowing that in seeing him, we're seeing the Father, and then praying in light of all of these things. That's the only way I can sum up this, this incredibly deep section. So much in this passage. Well, thanks so much, Andy. This has been episode 29 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 30 entitled, I Will Not Leave You as Orphans, where we'll discuss John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.